Thanks for that reading, Eric. Uh, my name's Rod, if you are new or visiting, and I'm one of the pastors here at WBC. And as you've heard from Pete, uh, we're looking at this uh, topic in this Break Between series. Um, your crowdsourced wisdom will still be there um, for next Sunday as well, if you haven't had a chance to look at that um, after our Proverbs series over this term. Uh, but uh, tonight and then next week, a couple of one-off sermons before we launch into Colossians, which will be our book um, that we'll work through in Term 4. Um, before I pray and we come to this topic, uh, let me just say a couple of uh, brief remarks as preface to it. Uh, firstly, um, as Pete mentioned, I recognise that this is a confronting topic and in a group this large there will be um, it's bound to be people that have faced uh, abuse at one level or another and so to talk through such a topic tonight will be hard. And So I just want to say I acknowledge that up front um, but I think it's important uh, that we do so um, because it's so often a topic that is uh, kept away or brushed under the carpet as it were often in Christian circles in particular um, because there can be shame or other feelings attached with it um, but this year, uh, 2018, throughout this year, uh, Australian Baptist ministries across Australia um, have a campaign on this very topic. So many Baptist churches around the country are dealing with it at some point in the year. We've just chosen this week uh, for it. They have got a campaign called No Place uh, for Violence Here uh, to address this issue. And they've created a website uh, which is titled A Just Cause. Uh, no dots or dashes or gaps all run together. A Just Cause com.au and there's some really good resources on there that I encourage you if you want to think further about this or hear testimonies of people that have faced difficult situations uh, that's a good place to go and I'll come back at the end to some other uh, resources that exist um, but let me pray for us now ask that God will help us as we uh, come to his word and think about this topic together Our Heavenly Father we do thank you uh, for your word to us uh, we acknowledge that in it we have the words of life that we might come into a living relationship with you, a holy God. But also we learn how we might live in a way that responds to your grace, that we may live in a way that pleases you. And as we think about this topic together this evening, we just ask that you might comfort us and encourage us where needed. That You may challenge us where needed too as we reflect on such a problem in our society today. Uh, we ask for your help and uh, your spirit to work in us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Rosie Batty is a domestic violence campaigner. You probably know her name because in 2015 she was nominated and became the Australian of the Year because of her campaigning efforts. But you may also know the tragedy that lies behind her becoming such a forceful campaigner in this area. Her campaigning started in 2014 after the tragic event of the loss of her son, Luke, at the age of 11, uh, who was murdered by her partner, his father, Greg Anderson. And I want to unpack her story a little bit as we begin tonight because it's indicative of, uh, I guess, the cycle that can often happen in domestic abuse. Uh, Batty met Anderson in 1992. Uh, they were working together at a recruiting company. Um, through meeting each other, they started a romantic relationship uh, that lasted for about two years initially. Um, she had uh, found pretty early into the relationship that he was violent, um, sexually violent in particular, and so that ended the relationship after two years. 
However, eight years later, uh, she initiated contact with him again, and they resumed a brief relationship in which uh, Batty became pregnant with their son, uh, Luke, who was subsequently born. Uh, pretty soon after they were back together again, um, the violence started, and it actually escalated after she became pregnant. Um, that abuse led to the relationship um, ending again, um, but there was ongoing contact because of their son. And so from June 2004 through to February 2014, period of you know, nearly 10 years, Anderson physically assaulted to her or sought to a number of times. He threatened to kill her on a number of occasions. It led to a whole uh, raft of arrests and charges and intervention orders in their relationship. And then all of this came to a culmination on the 12th of February 2014 when Greg Anderson turned up to their son's cricket practice in an outer suburb of Melbourne. And that was a watershed moment, as tragic as it was, um, for discussion of this issue in Australian society. Um, the former Australian Prime Minister now, Malcolm Turnbull, has said of domestic violence in Australia that cultural change requires a great advocate. And Rosie has been able to do that in a way that I think nobody has done before her. And I think that's right, because what happened on the back of her tragedy and her campaigning was that there was actually a royal commission into looking at domestic and family violence in her home state of Victoria, uh, which took place throughout 2015, then handed down recommendations uh, in 2016. And lots of good things are continuing to flow out of that. But you see, the sad truth is that Rosie Batty's story is not an isolated case. If only it were. Uh, unfortunately, the statistics are as follows. Uh, one in six women from the age of 15 onwards have experienced both sexual and physical violence from a current or former partner. If you uh, reduce that to just physical violence, the numbers go up to one in three. In fact, there were 132,000 cases in Australia last year alone. One in four women have experienced emotional abuse from a current or former partner. One in four children in Australia now are exposed to domestic abuse. Uh, and that is recognised now, formally, as a form of child abuse, to have to witness such things. Sadly, domestic and family violence is now the leading cause of homelessness for women and children in this country. Leading cause of homelessness. As you heard in the intro from Pete, um, the stats are now that, on average, one woman per week dives of violence from intimate partner relationship. In fact, that is now the leading contributor to death, disability and ill health in Australian women aged between 15 and 44. Between those ages, uh, intimate partner violence leading contributor to death, disability or ill health. And so I, I guess it's easy to say, but it should be said, these statistics are horrendous. It's shameful. It's a huge blight on Australian community. And we're not the only one around the world with statistics like this. And I guess the big question that I want us to consider tonight is this. 
What is God's response to domestic violence? What does God think about all of this? I mean, it's wonderful that there are royal commissions and that certain policies are being put in place. What is God's word to believers on such a topic? What does his word say to us on such matters? Well, the first answer to that question is this. He hates all forms of violence, including domestic violence. God hates all forms of violence, including domestic violence. Notice again what is recorded in Psalm 11, verses 4 to 7. David writes, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes everyone on earth. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous. But the wicked, who, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. On the wicked he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot, for the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. The upright will see his face. So here we have uh, a psalm of David, and it's written into a moment of crisis. Uh, David himself is facing violence, must be said from another male in Saul and his troops that are after him. But these verses show us uh, something of God's response to violence generally. You know, we can think at times that life is out of control, that it's chaotic, and that perhaps even what is unfolding is unseen and people don't realise uh, the fear and um, chaos that has ensued. But we're assured here in this passage in Psalm 11 that God sees and knows. You notice in verse 4, the temple... Uh, it's not a reference to an earthly building. It's not Solomon's temple. It hadn't been built yet. Uh, it would be built a generation later. Um, the picture is actually God seated in heaven on his throne. And the second part of verse 4 makes that doubly clear because it's a picture about how God knows everything, that he's omniscient, that he has knowledge of all things, also that he's omnipresent in that sense, that he is everywhere and knows all that is unfolding in his creation. But notice in uh, verses 4 and 5, we get this word examine that um, comes out twice. Uh, it could be translated test as well. But it's used in relation to believers, those who are God's people. And so what it's saying to us is this, that God will allow at times the righteous to face trials in this life. When bad things happen to us, when people sin against us, this does not mean that God has abandoned us. And that can often be a natural response of people. Why are these things happening in my life? Why has God left me alone in this? The assurance here in Psalm 11 is that God sees what the wicked do, that he hates what they do, their violence with a passion. God is not impassive. He may not always act instantly to right a wrong or to change a situation. But he is certainly not overlooking the violence. Rather, his righteous anger will be expressed. Whether that happens sometime in the present or only at the final judgment, God's anger and judgment will fall. And that's really the culmination of this section. Did you notice as we get to verse 6, when God acts in judgment on those who love violence, those who are wicked, we get this phrase, uh, fiery coals and burning sulfur. Um, we're used to, aren't we, hearing about um, sermons on fire and brimstone, this kind of thing. That's the phrase that is translated in that and many other passages in the old King James Version. 
Um, brimstone is another um, translation of sulfur in the Bible. So it's that same phrase that it's being used here, and it's a fearful picture, isn't it? The phrase is an allusion to Genesis 19 when that idea is first used, um, when the overthrow of the city of Sodom Remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19 where God brings down his judgment upon the city because of its wickedness. And so that phrase points back always in the Bible to Sodom. And Sodom always stands in the Bible as this perpetual reminder of God's sudden and final judgment that he will act. And so as we get towards the end of this psalm and in verse 7, we realize that our assurance as Believers, the assurance of any person in this world in terms of wrongs being righted is God's character. That our foundational hope is his nature, his desire to uphold justice, to stand against that which is wrong, to vindicate the upright. God is our one refuge in the face of sin. He's also our guarantee that violence, indeed any sin, will not go unpunished. That God will act whether now or on that final day. So as we apply uh, these principles to domestic violence in Australia today, I want to say firstly that God hates the sin of domestic violence. Just as he hates all forms of violence and sin. But we've also got to acknowledge as we address this topic that it's not just about physical violence. Domestic abuse sadly comes in many forms. Let me give you a definition so that we might understand the seven areas that it hits. Domestic violence is defined as abusive or intimidating behaviour inflicted by an adult against a current or former spouse or partner. It includes emotional, verbal, social, economic, spiritual, sexual and physical abuse. Such behaviour often seeks to control, humiliate, dominate or instil fear. See, some things are more obvious. If somebody's been punched and they're bruised, then often a person will speak up. Not always, sadly. But what about things that are more subtle and that are hidden? So economic control, where the person has no access to money is unable to go and do anything. Social control, where they're unable to visit their friends or family, they're stopped from interacting with other people. Emotional abuse, where things are done to them all the time or they're spoken to in a way that degrades them and undermines any confidence in anything that they're doing and so forth. You can see how these seven areas are crucial to understand. And the result is that sometimes people don't realise that they're in an abusive relationship. You might hear uh, a female say, well, he hasn't um, physically hit me. But that doesn't mean that abuse is not necessarily happening in a relationship either. And there's often a pattern to such relationships. Uh, there can be a cycle of abuse. And so it can start in a period of peace where things seem to be going well. And then there seems to be this slow escalation of different things that are happening in the relationship which are threatening leading thirdly to this outburst, this incident moment where there's an outbreak perhaps of physical violence or other things. And then following that, uh, a period of an uneasy truce that then follows where perhaps lots of promises are made that this will never happen again or perhaps even forgiveness is sought. 
But then the cycle starts again. One woman expressed the cycle in the following poem. Too many ifs, too many whens, too many sorries and never agains, too many promises, too many lies, far too many, one more tries. How many were there before I knew that actions speak louder than promises do? This is the sad truth of this cycle. And it's something we need to be aware of as um, we care for other people at times or indeed in our own lives. We need to say again that God abhors all sin and therefore all forms of abuse, including within an intimate relationship. Everything from emotional abuse to physical abuse is inexcusable. The kind of excuses, excuses that abusers will use are empty. And God actually sees them for what they are because he can see into the heart of a person. He knows whether they're just covering over their actions and their sins. So let me run some past you. The kind of excuses are, that um, are empty. It's not true that um, he just lost control in this one instant. She doesn't just need to do what he said and everything would be all right. She wouldn't just continue to hang in there and be abused if she really loved him. She didn't send him mixed messages. These kind of empty excuses just add to the sin. There is no excuse. And not only does God hate domestic violence, but he is committed to judging it, as we've already seen. Let me just return to that idea briefly. God is just and he will bring justice on the final judgment day, if not before. And that picture of judgment that we saw in Psalm 11 in verses 6 and 7 is a picture that returns throughout the Bible, uh, including in the New Testament, and is seen very clearly at the end of the Bible in Revelation 20 and 21 as the final scene of judgment is pictured in heaven. Let me take you to verse 8 of Revelation 21 to see God's final judgment on humanity. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. It's a very fearful and confronting scene. It's meant to be. It's a warning to all people. Above all, it's showing God's determination to judge all sin. And the finality of that judgment when it takes place on that day. This side of that moment, yes, there is hope for change and repentance and God's grace to be extended. But at one point, that time will end. And while most domestic abuse goes unreported, Christians need to know that God sees, God knows and God will judge. In December of last year, um, there was a case of domestic abuse uh, which made the media in a big way in the United Kingdom. Uh, there are similar cases in Australia, but I've picked on this one just as an example, again, of the kind of cycle and situation. I think we need to be aware of some of the things that unfold because they're unfolding around us in the Illawarra. Uh, it's one of the worst cases of domestic violence that the judge involved in this case had ever encountered. Um, the woman's name was Charlotte Rooks. Um, she had a 13-year-old son. Through um, 
this man coming into her life and helping her at a time of difficulty where she was struggling to pay rent and had other things. She ended up in a relationship with a man who then became very um, violent in that relationship. Um, he controlled things to the situation where she could no longer pay the rent in her flat and so she was forced to move out of it and had nowhere to go except to his place, which made the control even greater and the abuse much stronger from that point. She was punched regularly, uh, whether at home or driving around in a car if they ever did go out somewhere. She was beaten with hammers, she was cut with glass, she was made to stay up for all the night, standing up for hours, unable to sleep. Basically it got to the point where it was torture within this flat. And according to Charlotte, it was fear for her loved ones that kept her initially from leaving. She said this, This was weeks into the relationship, but he kept on threatening to do stuff to my family and to my 13-year-old son. Well, the situation would not have ended except that her partner had loaned his car to a friend who managed to get into a minor car accident and then police came round knocking on the door trying to sort out some insurance and problems that didn't follow through with that car accident and that allowed her a moment to run out of the flat and escape. Well, she eventually saw her partner Craig Thomas jailed for 10 years in, 10, 000, in 2013 for his sustained abuse. But I want to say that many times the person is not brought to justice in that way in our courts and they are not jailed for the abuse that happens, though they should be. But we need to be reminded by passages like Psalm 11 that God is holy, that he must and he will judge sin, including that of domestic violence. God will condemn it and we need to be sure that we condemn it I guess I just want to say unequivocally tonight, as I've already mentioned, that this church unequivocally condemns domestic abuse. That brings us to a second answer to the question. Second answer to the question of what is God's response uh, to this epidemic? Well, secondly, his marriage blueprint rejects it. God has a good plan for us, a perfect plan for relationships and it rejects such attitudes and actions within a relationship of intimacy. So secondly, his marriage blueprint rejects it. Have a look at Colossians 3 and 1 Peter 3 with me. A couple of verses here. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. So notice in uh, Colossians 3.19 here uh, that husbands are instructed not to be harsh with their wives. The, the Greek word there actually is, means embittered. It's not so much about an action, but it's actually a feeling or something that wells up an emotion of bitterness that can take root within a relationship, indeed within any relationship, but particularly in a close relationship like marriage. And so God's reminder here is that feelings of bitterness can easily creep in. And when those are nurtured or allowed to grow within a relationship, then when other factors are at play, somebody has, is short-tempered or tired or so on, then these kind of um, embittered um, reactions come to the surface and harsh words and actions can follow. 
Notice that God's blueprint for marriage not only rejects domestic violence, but even being harsh, even allowing bitterness to exist within a marriage relationship. And positively notice too that God calls husbands to love their wives. I mean, this is the positive. This should be the opposite of such actions. The word love here is agape, that Greek word that means sacrificial, costly, other-centered love. This is not just an easy I love you kind of phrase that's thrown out. This is lay down your life love. The pinnacle, the example that we're set to for this is Christ himself and his death on the cross. And so the parallel passage in Ephesians 5 makes it really clear to us that such love is to mirror the love that Christ has for the church, where he would go to the cross laying down his life in love for her. And so the point here that Paul is making in Colossians 3 is that one test of whether such sacrificial love exists in a marriage is that a husband will not be harsh with his wife. If he's truly sacrificially loving and other-centered, then there will be no bitterness, there'll be no harshness in the marriage relationship, let alone any actions or words that then flow from that. And the same theme of not being harsh is put more positively. Did you notice in the second verse from 1 Peter 3, verse 7? We get these two words there used, considerate and respect. Uh, the word for respect is more literally honour. So be considerate with your wife, honour your wife in all things. There's a wonderful picture there, again, of this blueprint that God has, which is the distinct opposite of the domestic violence that so often uh, overwhelms relationships in our society today. And 1 Peter 3 7 is helpful because it tells us why this command is necessary. I mean, we might, why is this even necessary to say? Surely, you know, the husband will love his wife and be considerate and respectful. But notice the context in which that is said. Wives are described as the weaker partner. Now, I think when we read that description, that can sound very chauvinistic or sexist today, or we worry that perhaps Peter is even saying that the woman is worth less in God's eyes than the man, that somehow he's more important, or that you know, she's spiritually weaker, or all kinds of um, assumptions are made about what is being said there. Let me just deal with a few of the wrong assumptions that come as we read a verse like that. Firstly, this passage is not saying that she is spiritually less in the eyes of the Lord or that she is of less value before God. We read from the very beginning of Scripture in Genesis 1, from verse 26 to 28, that male and female, he created them in the image of God, he created them. Equal before God, equal in creation, equal in redemption, Galatians 3.26. But also in this passage, even in this verse in 1 Peter 3.7, Notice that as he gets into the second part of the verse, he talks about how husbands and wives are equally heirs of the promises of God, the promise of eternal life. And so it's very clear in this passage that it's got nothing to do uh, with God valuing the man more than the woman or that he is in any way uh, spiritually superior. So what is Peter saying? What does it mean to say that she's the weaker partner? I think as most commentators agree today, it's simply speaking about physical strength. It's simply speaking about physical strength. And it goes right to the heart of the topic that we're talking about tonight. Now, I know there are exceptions to this. There's plenty of women in this room that are tougher than me and could probably beat me in an arm wrestle. It's not saying there's not exceptions to this rule. It's not saying that all men are strong and women are weak. Not at all. But saying, generally speaking, uh, men are more physically um, 
stronger, more powerful often in a relationship. And so as a result, they should be considerate, they should honour, they should be respectful of their wives. They should never use physical force or any physical strength they have in a way to dominate or control their wife. That's exactly what he's speaking about. Of course, this is an important instruction as we think about the topic of domestic violence. And what we see in this pattern of human marriage is as I mentioned earlier, is that it's modelled on Christ and the church. That we have to keep remembering that um, you know, human marriages are only a shadow of a far greater thing, and that is Christ who laid down his life for the church. So think with me for a moment as we put those two together. Can you imagine? It's a blasphemous thought, so let me warn you before we speak. Can you ever imagine Christ assaulting, physically attacking his church? Christ not being loving, not being considerate, not honouring his bride, the church. Absolutely not. And so how is it that we could possibly consider that that should occur in a marriage relationship, which is to reflect the relationship of Christ and the church? And so this alone tells us that any use of force, intimidation, violence, exploitation within a marriage is contrary to God's will. It has no place amongst God's people. Now, look, as we apply this second point to domestic violence in Australia today, uh, what we've got to be very clear about is that God's marriage blueprint is good. It's perfect, in fact. And so often people want to throw out God's marriage blueprint and blame it even for the violence they see within marriages. There must be something wrong with God's commands. What we need to understand is when people are abusive within a marriage relationship, there is no justification for such actions from God's word. There is no justification from the Bible for men using physical force in a relationship. When those things unfold, that does not undermine God's word. What it points to is human sin. Now think about it down through the centuries. The Bible has been used, sure, misapplied and abused by people in many contexts. So people have tried to say slavery is all right from the Bible. People have tried to say racism is all right from the Bible and taken verses out of context. Does that mean we throw away the Bible? No, we say that interpretation is clearly false. God has a good and perfect way for us. The problem is our sinfulness and our response. God's word has been misused and misapplied, including on marriage. But God's blueprint for marriage is beautiful. Rather than throwing out God's word and blaming it for domestic violence, as some people have done in our media in the last two years, we need to see that the problem is us. Dr. Claire Smith uh, is a Bible teacher. Um, some of you may have heard her speak at the Wollongong Women's Conference last year, 2017. Uh, she wrote a book a few years ago called God's Good Design, What the Bible Really Says About Men and Women. And in a recent article for the Gospel Coalition, uh, she wrote about this misuse of the Bible and attack on the Bible in this way. So, if domestic abuse is found among God's people, which tragically it is, and if it is mishandled in churches, which can happen, that's not because God's word is inadequate or his pattern for marriage is at fault. It is because, as God's people, we have failed to know and obey his word. And that is why, as Christians, we can be glad of recent efforts to bring domestic violence into public consciousness 
and to address it both in our society and in the church. Well, obviously, I agree with that sentiment. That's why I'm quoting it. But let me say, um, it's an important point to make. And I guess that then begs the question, well, why do we see such a mess in our society, even sometimes in marriages within our churches? Well, I hope you've seen already that the problem is sin. The problem is us. But it does go right back to the fall. It's not a new thing, as if domestic violence has suddenly appeared in the last few years. It starts in Genesis 3, at the fall. We need to realise that humanity's rebellion against God's rule in the garden produced a number of consequences as God acted in judgment upon our sin. And one of those consequences was a battle for control in marriages was set up. So have a look at Genesis 3, verse 16 with me. I think this is a key verse to understand this. God says, To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labour you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now that second part of the verse there in Genesis 3.16 is no justification for a husband harshly ruling over his wife. What it's actually acknowledging is the effect that sin will have in a marriage relationship. And the desire that is spoken about there in terms of the woman, is not a sexual desire or even an emotional desire to be with a husband. The word desire there is actually a very negative word and it relates, it's a parallel to the next phrase in terms of the husband as well. Let me show you why. The word desire is really referring to a struggle to dominate or to control and so the marriage relationship can easily descend into that kind of tension and fight Chapter 4, verse 7, this same word desire is used in the very next chapter of Genesis where God is speaking to Cain about his struggle with sin, how his anger will lead to sin unless he controls it. God says, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires, same Hebrew word, it desires to have you, but you must rule over it. So you see how the word desire here is used in a negative way. It's referring to this struggle to control. And so that's what often sadly happens in our marriage relationships. We've been seeing it since Genesis 3 that the wife and the husband will end up trying to fight for control and direction in the relationship, and this will create tension and a lot of fallout that flows from that. And I guess as we look at that and we see that that's part of God's consequences for our sin, that all marriages are therefore marred in this way that we can tend to throw up our hands and say, well, God's blueprint then is too hard. He's given us a blueprint, but we can't meet it because we're sinners and he's stuck us in this battle and struggle in which we don't always act as we should, where we don't live out the agape love that he calls us to. Well, that could be a reaction, but I put it to you, it's the wrong one. The right response to this truth is to say, we need to run to God to pray. We need his help. What this is telling us is that God has set an ideal for our marriages, but we won't even get close to living that out day to day without him enabling us. We need the work of his spirit in us to change us and shape us to be able to even start living the way he intends for us. We need to pray. And that brings us to a third and final answer to our question. third answer to our question tonight is this, uh, of God's response to domestic violence. He wants 
to restore victims. He wants to restore victims and, yes, even abusers too. You see, the gospel message is a message of reconciliation, isn't it? Of restoration between sinful human beings and a holy God. And that restoration can only happen through repentance and faith in Christ's atoning work. And so that tells us that we know that's our only way back to a right relationship with God. We need his grace to be received back in. But we also need to realize that that very grace that God has shown to us, that unmerited kindness has only come to us because God's own son has been violently assaulted that we might be forgiven. We need to realize as we think about the hours that followed Jesus being in the Garden of Gethsemane, how he was tortured and beaten before he even had to carry his cross up to Golgotha where he was brutally crucified like many others before and after him. God knows what it is to face horrific violence. But this violence produces forgiveness for us. It produces new life. And that good news that God has expressed to us in the gospel is a wonderful truth that can be applied in all areas of our life, including our relationships. We need to understand that we need God's grace as we relate to one another. But I also want to say this as we think about this important point. While God's forgiveness of our sins means that we need to always be ready to forgive others of their sins, that as God says, we can't receive his forgiveness and then say, no, I'm not going to forgive that person. We need to recognize clearly in this area of domestic violence that restoration for victims will often require them to move out of their unsafe relationship. And this is because, as we've seen, domestic abuse often happens in a cycle. And that cycle almost always escalates. And so I guess I want to say tonight, if there is anyone here in an abusive relationship... You need to leave. You need to leave. The Bible does not call women, or men for that matter, to be a punching bag, to continue to suffer any form of abuse, that somehow that is honouring God. For your own protection, you need to separate and get the support you need. Now let me say also, um, we must desire reconciliation, if it is possible, but for reconciliation to happen in such circumstances, it needs to happen from a safe place and it needs a third party to be involved to help with that. Now, in saying that, I'm not downplaying the importance of marriage. Christians need to take God's commitment to the preservation of marriage seriously, and we certainly do as a church. But we also need to uphold God's commitment to the protection of the vulnerable. And this is a case where that needs to have priority. Now, I want to say to anyone here today as well, a second really important point. If you have suffered abuse in your life at any point up to now, please know that from God's eyes, that abuse does not define you as a person. You are not now a victim that is shaped by that for the rest of your life. Absolutely, there's no doubt going to be consequences. We cannot play down terrible events that may happen in a person's life. But if the gospel means anything, it means not only salvation, but the fact that God can bring renewal, that he can fix some of the brokenness of this world and its impact on us, that there can be change. More than that, 
when you enter into eternal life, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, that impact of those events, what has been done to you, will be fully healed. It will have been dealt with at that point. There is new life to come where what has gone before is fully erased. Have a look at those wonderful words that you'll know well from Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4. Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4. God speaking, they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Notice that last phrase, the old order of things has passed away. There is a new start in eternity. The things of this life will not continue to shape who we are as the new creation in Christ in eternity. Marriage, earthly marriages do not exist in heaven. Matthew 22, Jesus tells us that marriages are just for this life. But in the life to come, we have a perfect groom in Jesus Christ who brings together his people, the bride of Christ, to be with him. And in Christ, we have someone who will treat us perfectly. And he will wipe away our tears and all the crying and pain that has been known from this world that has marred our lives will have ended. And God can bring that, and that will be a wonderful day. And I want to say to any who have been abusers tonight that God is interested in you too. He does not want sin to continue in his world. He doesn't want it to continue to dominate your life. He calls you to repentance. He offers change for you as well. That God can bring genuine repentance and salvation through the good news of Christ's death and resurrection. But I want to say clearly also that true repentance will mean big changes. It doesn't just mean mouthing the words, I'm sorry. It means much more than that. It will mean things like giving up on controlling behavior. It will mean bringing that abusive behavior into the light, actually acknowledging that before other people and seeking help. More than that, it will also involve God breaking that cycle, a cycle that you may have seen in the generation before you that you've mimicked. But God promises he can bring change. 1 John 1, 1.9, a wonderful verse for those that find ourselves in those shoes. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. As we close, I want to put a challenge to the guys here tonight. If you're somebody who wants to uphold God's word, who stands for all the good things that we've seen in God's blueprint for marriage and relationships, then I want to say to you that changing the culture of our nation starts with us. It's every time you hear that sexist joke or comment, it's every time you hear that degrading discussion about a woman, it's every time you observe violence or poor actions and you do nothing. You must speak up. You've got to intervene. You've got to say this is wrong. You've got to pull up the person, be courageous enough to do so. 
So often we observe things and they're just left. That's somebody else's problem. So often the comment is made and no one says anything. It's allowed to go by. And what created, is created in the vacuum is a culture where these things are fine. Where people can speak and act in ways that are abusive. That's not okay. And it starts with us. We started with the question tonight. What does God think about domestic violence? We've seen three things. Firstly, he hates domestic violence. He hates all violence, all sin. And he hates this as well. There is no excuse. Secondly, we've also seen that he has a perfect blueprint for marriage. That he has a good way, a right way that our relationships might unfold. That we might relate as he intended with selfless love and respect. And thirdly, we've seen that God is in the business of restoration, that he wants to reconcile, restore those who have been abused and indeed to bring change in those who have been abusers. There are some numbers that are going to come up on the screen now. And I guess I just want to say finally as we close that if you have been impacted in any way, that I really encourage you to speak to somebody tonight or to seek professional help. I'm not pretending for a moment to be a professional in this area, but there are actually some people in the life of our church who work for FACTS and work as full-time Christian counsellors who have great skill in this area, and I'm more than happy to connect you with them. But certainly I'm happy to pray with anyone. We can all be praying and caring for one another. Let me encourage you to get help. Allowing it just to continue is not good. And it will continue. We need to break the cycle. And it's hard to do so. But silence and failure to act will not bring change. So let me encourage you to have the courage to make steps. Or if you know somebody that's in such a situation, to stand with them and help them to make those difficult steps. Let me pray for us as we close. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is so abundantly clear on all forms of sin. And domestic violence is such a scar on Australian society. And yet it's one of so many sins that grieve your heart. And Lord, we pray tonight that you might help us to know clearly what your will is in terms of how marriage relationships should be conducted. Father, too, we pray that you would give us the courage uh, to speak against that which is wrong, to stand with and support those who have faced such horrible betrayals in the closest of relationships. Uh, Lord, we pray that you might help us to be those who acknowledge that you will bring justice and that indeed we can even work for it in this life. Lord, help us, we pray, by your Spirit to act. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.